Yeah, perhaps a museum should not exist or not exist in the way that we think about it and in the way that it exists now. Welcome to Decolonization in Action, a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, and science are being decolonized today. We hope to interview scientists, historians, activists, museum curators, and others who put decolonization in practice. My name is Edna Bonhomme. And my name is Christina Comer. And we are broadcasting from the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin, Germany. This podcast hopes to explore a range of questions, including but not limited to, what does decolonization mean? What decolonial actions are currently taking place by artists, activists, scholars, and laypeople? What does justice look like for post-colonial subjects? How does activism influence decolonial practices? This inaugural episode consists of two parts. In part one, we take a journey around contested sites in Berlin, discussing how street names honor German colonial perpetrators rather than celebrating the heroes of colonial resistance movements, as well as the relationship between museums, scientific research, colonial pasts, and the coloniality of the present. We investigate a range of issues and ask ourselves, how are spaces colonial? We take you on a journey following the street names of Berlin as our starting point, beginning in the former East Berlin on Paul Robeson Street with Dr. Noah Ha. Then we take a trip and try to trace the colonial geography of Berlin's Natural History Museum with Professor Dr. Tahani Nadim. Dr. Noah Ha is the director of the Center for Integration Research at the Technical University in Dresden, and she is taught at the Center for Metropolitan Studies at the Technical University in Berlin, as well as at the Humboldt University in Berlin. Professor Dr. Tahani Nadim is Junior Professor for Sociocultural Anthropology in a joint appointment between the Museum for Natural History in Berlin and the Department for European Ethnology at the Humboldt University in Berlin. As we stood on Paul Robeson Street, we asked Dr. Noah Ha why she chose to meet us at this corner in Prinzlauberg. So I choose the street because um, this is concerning to the question of how to memorize and engage with colonial history, but also with anti-colonial resistance in the GDR context. Paul Robson is not an anti-colonial fighter from the continent, but he's an African-American and he was in the Communist Party and he was very, had very close ties to um, the GDR. And there had been other streets in, here in Berlin, such as like the Ho Chi Minh Street, in Dresden, there is the Patrice Lumumba Street. Um, and uh, actually, I was really surprised because I grew up in West Germany. And when I saw the Patrice Lumumba Street, I was like, wow, I never would see such a street name in West Germany. And so when we talk about colonialism, how colonialism is remembered, in particular post-colonial struggles, there's a lot of struggles around street names. And most of them take place in West Germany. So it's a fight against Luderitzstraße uh, street. And, but if you look at Leipzig and Dresden, they don't have Luderitzstraße because the GDR took them away. So I thought it's uh, because we're in former GDR territory. So I think it's a good occasion to also reflect upon um, not only how Germany as a nation state, but also Prussia and so on were engaging in colonialism, slave trade and so on but also what happened through GDR and West Germany and also now in the context of post-socialist trans 
information and so on. And that's why I choose that place because it's quite unique. I don't know why. I think there was no Angela Davis street in uh, GDR. Um, but there's kind of the research about Martin Luther King who went to East Berlin. Um, so there are bits of history referring to the African-American struggle f and the solidarity, kind of a solidarity movement. I mean, when Angela Davis was in jail, they were sending cards and had so every... So it was really part of GDR solidarity movement. That's what people who grew up in GDR can recall, but on the other hand, what's not talked about how racist the GDR worked, despite of having an anti-colonial political or nation-state stance, and what's going on today. So actually talking about colonialism and racism um, is not just a West German question, it's also East German, and I see very few reflection upon that, and that's why I choose the street here. We continued the conversation in a cafe and started exploring the ways in which cities are entrenched in colonialism. So the, the codes or categories to understand how coloniality is produced and reproduced is then in terms of migration, like who are the migrants, and I'm talking in that that the, the conversation about migration to me in Germany is a conversation to racialize the other. And so that you have to see in, uh, in regard to um, colonialism and its aftermath, but also to reproduce colonial relations within the city. Looking at urban infrastructure of colonial knowledge production, such as museums, I think the most prominent example are the ethnological collections. And not only in Berlin, it's, it's, it's throughout uh, Europe you have these ethnological so-called ethnological collections, which are directly connected with the history of colonialism. But I think as well, if you look at the technical museums, at urban history museums, and the natural history museums, botanical gardens, botanical museums, and they are very much connected to colonialism. And when you go even further to understand the becoming of the modern city and the question of modernity is connected on colonialism. And so when we talk about the modern city and in particular the industrialization, the question is where came the raw materials, how it came to Europe and so on. So the whole formation and the whole in its being as a city, and in particular I'm referring very much to European cities, to cities in, on the, in the European context. Either they're the people who are living there, the way how they have the daily lives, the political infrastructure, access to citizenship, um, gender relations, education system, university system, and so on. They're structured in colonial ways, how it's coded. So the, you could identify many, many different codes. And in terms of components of the power structures, I think it's hard to, to, to confine it to some few specific power structures where there are so many sites where it takes place. But what I think is so interesting, looking at the city, there are also so many sites of resistance. And, and 
depending on what side or struggle you look at, you can see what kind of power is enacted. And I think what makes it much more complicated, in particular in the last 30 years, you have an enmeshment of a neoliberalization of urbanism connected with colonial nostalgia and so on. And so um, I think there is a lot of work to, to, to unpack these relations. Then we moved to discussing a complicated and contested touristic site, Preussen Park, also known as Thai Park in Berlin. Looking at Thai Park is interesting to get an understanding of daily life or colonial relationship. It, it has a sub subversive notion and I, I really like it that it's called Preussen Park and informally and also very prominently it's called Thai Park. They are operating since 20 years, two decades, and the local government is trying to push away the market, but on the other hand they know it got so prominent, there's so many tourists coming around which is going beyond the local area, so they can't really do anything about it and what's so interesting about the Thai park you have a very strange solidarity between the Thai women and their white husband and so it's very much a history and setting up or a space making of marriage migration and and I wrote about that uh, Thai park as well because the women are the ones making the space and the women are the ones who share knowledge around. And there was also an organization who wanted to share information um, for women around the question of trafficking. And so they wanted to put some information in Thai at their nearby wall and it was the local administration who forbid them to put their information there. So then you can ask how is the local regulation in line with colonial um, and against the women who operate there. I think it's it's amazing what these women are, are doing and how they make it their space to meet and share and also make money. They're, making, they're gaining their own income, but it's on the condition of precarity, it's on the condition of insecurity, and there is no long-term perspective. And there's also this kind of gentrification in terms of that it became um, a commodified area because tourists are coming in and I looked in my research at Thai Park and uh, to a process around in, in New York to the Red Hook uh, food vendors and it was very similar to see and the Red Hook food vendors was very huge in former market but then this whole area which was a port area was turned around into a new urbanized area and so the local administration said okay if you want to operate here you need to have trucks and so on and it was put a lot of investment for the local vendors and so they had to go along with a specific kind of gentrification and it had an effect on their business but if you look at the location of the Preussen Park right now I don't think that the urban transformation around there would change so much in the next 10 years so I think what we've seen in the last 20 years the contestation like every summer the police is coming out again with a raid it's in the press so it's in and out in and out since 20 years but I think there won't be a huge change. Not there. But if we talk about street vending, so we could also talk about Görlitzer Park. We could talk about street vendors in the historical district. There are few, but there are some. And actually, you can, we can talk about his street vending, which is not really recognized in urban sociology as a feature of the European city, because it's not understood as being part of a modern city. And so the regulations against street vending, and Berlin is different, 
as like cities in Italy or Greece, where you have a different influx of uh, migrants and you have a different need of survival of a specific people. It seems to be natural for the European city not to have street vending. And in my work, I wanted to challenge that whole idea that perhaps asking that street vending actually is a condition of what urbanity is about. So there are many um, paths to, to discuss around street vending. First, before I worked on colonialism, I worked through a feminist approach to the city. So public space is gendered as male, and the private space is gendered as female. And so that has an effect where specific genders are working. Metropolitan colonialism as such is oriented to the white male body. And anybody seems to be who's not white, not male, not Christian, seems to be deviant of that. And so it's in many places in the city, in the institutions where um, gender is produced. And it's, I mean, what's I think the most apparent example are the toilets in public space. That we have just uh, two toilets for men and women and also to have a very rigid organization around just two gender. Why isn't it three or four or five or whatever? And the obsession that there should be only two gender organizing society is to me a legacy of colonialism. And so you could go through how that is taking place within the city. And, and that, I think, is what queer of color theory or also geography is teaching me how that is entangled and enmeshed the specific sides of body making and what it means being a queer body of color uh, is it possible and how to navigate through space and also how these bodies are excluded from specific spaces Now we're at the Natural History Museum of Berlin, where we are meeting Professor Dr. Tahani Nadim. We started off the conversation by talking about museum spaces, performance art, and colonialism. And historically, natural history museums were part of a massive imperial infrastructure. They've been connected from the, from the get-go Specimens were collected and sent to all collections worldwide or to the big collections in the metropolitan European centers. So then the question is, how do these kinds of historical infrastructures persist in the new developments around data and digitization? Or infrastructures such as we can think of, for example, taxonomy as a specific kind of infrastructure. So, so that the rules around identifying, naming, describing species, which is the key task of natural history museums. This is what happens in the background. And this is based on Linnaean taxonomy. So what What happens when this also, again, stemming from or a crucial part of the colonial formation, because, of course, Linnaeus also did taxonomy for, for the human, for Homo sapiens. So what happens when these kinds of infrastructures are translated into data infrastructures and data worlds? How do these histories persist and what effects do they have? So I find these questions super interesting that, that again, data frictions give us access to. And data frictions also always point to moments where the translation fails where things don't quite make sense, where you have to find workarounds, where you have to improvise, where perhaps you have to cheat the system. So we have uh, historians of science who've 
done extensive research on the colonial provenance of the Brachiosaurus, um, the big dinosaur in the main hall. And their research queried not just the, the ways in which objects were acquired and came into the museum, but also the entanglement of the discipline of paleontology with colonial formations. There are a lot of initiatives that proclaim to be decolonizing the museum from people who are already in positions of power, but there's also a lot of activists who don't run museums usually. I think to really consider decolonizing the museum can only happen from a position that, that is ready to give up the museum as an institution, that is ready to give up on the practice of collection as it's still practiced. Researching into uh, imperial botany and the whole enterprise of organizing systematic seed raids during the times of imperialism to take seeds. They were shipped to Berlin where the botanic central station for the colonies then distributed these seeds to experimental stations in the German colonies. So we traced the journey of sisal, which is an agave plant used uh, for fibers in shipping ropes, for example, and traced it from Mexico to Berlin and from Berlin to um, Tanzania and presented this journey for visitors of the museum in, in vitrines and um, presented also images, photographs of sisal plantations and tried to problematize and make visible these ongoing entanglements the museum collection has with um, Germans, Germany's colonial past and showing that this is still very much a present. What's super interesting is that the, the actual scientists working on collections, the custodians, the curators of collections, are the ones that are interested in knowing more about where their objects have come from. And they are the ones that are also interested in asking the difficult questions. Partly also because of a scientific curiosity, but then also because they realize that, yeah, some of the stuff, most of the stuff has been acquired through ways that, that weren't just. So let's figure out scientifically where objects have come from and the context of acquisition. So working directly with the scientists and with the curators, that's been an extremely fruitful uh, avenue. And I think colonial provenance research, or generally to look at uh, the provenance of parts of the mineralogy collection during the Nazi era. So this is often the model used for provenance research, because this is what's in Germany super established. So working closely with, with the scientists is, is very fruitful. But that also means provenance research as something that needs to that needs to involve many stakeholders that I think that's important to to not um, have it perhaps curtailed by a specific sense or have it curtailed by a, by a rigid sense of objectivity and scientificity and thinking about other stakeholders and how to bring them in on the process. Although again, this kind of bringing in is a difficult gesture. So that also needs to be kind of thought about how this is done. And maybe maybe even thinking about how the very questions can be outsourced or abdicated and reversing, reversing this relation a little bit rather than questions and research only ever coming from inside the museum. Thinking about how can we open this for questions from the outside and then provide resources and spaces to address them. We have a paleobotanical department. So one thing that's interesting about dealing with something that's not there is exactly the question of how do you how do you get hold of the hauntings and the ghosts, like referring now to uh, perhaps the 
ghostly matters, um, the way that Avery Gordon describes the, the persistent presences of colonial pasts that felt and uh, present for some people, but that institutions are very bad at acknowledging or at uh, making visible. But all is not lost. How do everyday people, workers, curators, and scholars put decolonization into action? Why I love to be in this city, because you have a very active grassroots movement. You have a huge culture, also squatting uh, culture. So on, on one hand, you have a marketing, you have a branding, and also in terms of pacification and so on. But on the other hand, you have this massive presence of people which is about the right to the city movements who are organizing against gentrification, who are organizing against the commodification of urban space, who are fighting for the rights of refugees, who are fighting for... It's a mass of um, organization and, and that's very impressive. So the contestation takes place and it's um, and sometimes it's just it's so good to see it's not clear and we have a quite leftist government in the city. What we need and what we cr have to craft again and again it's um, to create solidarity networks again and again and I think the term of solidarity is so important because also in the times of neoliberalization, individualization and individual self-entrepreneurialism and so on, the understanding of solidarity and standing in solidarity is it's so different like 20 years before, decades before. And on one hand we need to do the analytical work to understand how the question of citizenship is related to global economy and then from there on build some kind of uh, solidarity activism. I think it's super crucial to imagine better futures. But I also think it's super crucial to enroll the ima imagination in telling other histories. I think Saidiya Hartman has this nice term of critical fabulation and it points to also something I mentioned earlier about these ghostly matters and these these hauntings where for much of the world's history, human history, we don't have the records. Just because most people weren't recorded, it's only, as we know, the powerful who write history and who inscribe themselves into archives. So the imagination is a critical tool to writing these histories. This is the Decolonization in Action podcast. This episode examined Germany's colonial past, museum collections, and activist networks. In part two, we will explore how people have been adopting decolonization as a methodology. For this inaugural episode, we would especially like to thank Stephanie Hood, Anya Krieger, Nina Prada, Professor Dr. Dagmar Schaefer, Karin Weniger, and Danyang Chang. This October in Berlin is Anti-Colonial Month. There will be forums, protests, and panel discussions. For more information and the complete program, please visit berlinanticolonial.wordpress.com and find Anti-Colonial Berlin on Facebook. 
If you'd like to engage us in conversation or listen to future episodes, as well as to find the complete biographies of who we interviewed and links to all organizations and projects mentioned in this episode, please visit decolonizationinaction.wordpress.com and find us on Twitter at hashtag Thank you for joining us.